Thank you for listening to this forum podcast. Please check out our website for a rich archive of podcasts and writing from contemporary philosophers and other researchers on a wide variety of topics. The Forum is an educational charity dedicated to bringing academic philosophy to a broader audience. Please consider donating to us via our Just Giving page, which you can find on our website. Happy listening. Thank you all for coming. Uh, my name is Danielle Sands. I'm a fellow at the Forum and I'm going to be chairing this evening. Um, and we're going to be thinking about invasive species. Um, so let me introduce our speakers, Fred Pierce. Emma Townsend and Chris Thomas. Uh, the format for the event is that our speakers will be discussing the issues and you'll have plenty of time to jump in with your questions during the conversation. Um, so perhaps we could start with you, Chris. Um, tell us a little bit about invasive species. What are they? Is it a useful name? How do they differ from what we call native species? Well, um well, it's great, it's great being here, and um, so there's a number of words in use. So one is invasive species, and that's usually defined as being something that's harmful to us or to other forms of wildlife. And that's, that's great as in, in principle, but the difficulty is that not all humans are in agreement as to what we think is harmful. So one person might like a species that um, is a particular pretty flower, and somebody else might think it's, it's a horrible thing. Then there's non-native, which generally means that um, it's arrived sometime sort of fairly recently and then native species are those good old in in this context here those good old british species which have been with us for a long time the problem is all of these definitions are totally and utterly arbitrary and people are getting very uptight and try to exterminate invasive species and to some extent non-native species and the, a, a quick thought experiment really kind allows you to sort of see the problem. So 15,000 to 20,000 years ago, we were in an ice age, and virtually none of the species that you will see around here now today, um, be that in and around London, or if you go onto Hampstead Heath or wherever, um, none of, virtually none of those species lived in Brit the British Isles at all. That's what in a geological time is a moment ago. And then peoples, of course, were going back and forth to Europe, and sometimes we brought accidentally or deliberately, we brought species with us. And this was happening from very early times when people were using certain plants for medicinal reasons and so on. So the Romans are often blamed for bringing a lot of things here, but, um, but actually it's a more continuous flow back and forth from the continent. So if something like for example, the brown hare, the European brown hare, that arrived about the time of the Romans or soon afterwards. That's not a native species by definition, even though it's on our protected list of species now. So by and large, if something arrived, the Romans brought them in, then we think, OK, that's fine. Um, uh, that's long enough ago. Um, but... Uh, the Normans, um, soon after, the Normans are probably responsible for the rabbit, although the Romans did have some in captivity. Um, so is a rabbit native? Is a thousand years enough? So when we get to about 500 years ago, things like the sycamore tree, oh, not so sure about that. I'm a bit uncomfortable about that. And then 
So almost everything, be it rhododendrons or Himalayan balsam or anything else uh, that came in the last few hundred years, then that gets uh, the official um, disapproval. But time is a continuous thing, and all of these are basically recent. Similarly, from how far, an equally arbitrary question is not just how long has something got to be in a particular place before we consider it native, but how far away does it come um, before we treat it as a foreigner. If something just pops over the channel from France, um, it seems that we're more prepared to accept it than if it comes from um, much more distant locations. So my argument, as others have said in the, in the past, would be that we should really think about how we interact on with species based on the consequences for us and our perception of how we would like the environment to be, rather than some notion of nativeness and duration and how far, how basically how foreign they are. Um, and perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the relationship between uh, diversity and non-native species. I mean, we, I think we tend to think that when, when non-native uh, species are introduced, then uh, diversity diminishes. Is this the case? Or? Well, it can be. And so this is one of these difficult things in um, public and um, policy forums, because it is undoubtedly true that invasive species, things like rats arriving, and humans for that matter, arriving on Pacific islands, have driven a number of flightless birds extinct. That's, that's quite clear. Um, but uh, almost all countries in the world, uh, it may well be all, but I'm saying almost because I'm not sure it is every single one of them, that the transport of species that mainly under uh, us doing it has resulted in an increase in the number of species that live in each country. So if we take Britain, there are um, close to 2,000 officially non-native um, um, animal and plant species, about three quarters of those are plants, um, living in the British Isles. So then the question is, so the number of species in Britain is, with the, all these introductions, including the ones I've mentioned like brown hare and rabbit, about a couple of thousand extra species in the country now. So the question is, how many native species have become extinct from the entire country, not just a local area or even quite a substantial area of the country? How many native species have become extinct from the whole of Great Britain as a result of these 2,000 additions? Answers on a postcard? <laughs> any, any answers? Anyone want to chance their arm? Five. Five. Any advance on five? Nobody knows because there's no baseline from which to do the research. The answer is zero. There is no known, there is no known, there are species that have died out during those, these few thousand years, but as far as we know, it's not a direct consequence of the new species arriving. Now, there are species that declined a great deal because of the new arrivals, like red squirrel, for example, in the, with the particularly with the pathogens that are the diseases that are that the grey squirrel is more resistant to. But as far as we know, and so so the net result has been extra species in the country. And this goes for most parts of the world. Um, and in addition to that, a fairly small number 
but there are actually new species that have come into existence. So very recently, in the last year or two, yet another species of monkey flower has, come, has been discovered where one parent um, was imported as a plant, as a horticultural plant, um, a species of mimulus, the monkey flowers, those nice sort of nice yellow things that grow on damp ground. Uh, one species came from South America, one came from North America, um, and they were both bought, brought to Britain. Um, they made friends, they produced nice seeds, and their offspring was sterile, but they could grow clonally as many plants could, so they didn't die out. And then, by a sort of genetic accident, uh, in a couple of places, they doubled the number of chromosomes in each cell, and occasionally these genetic accidents happen. Normally, genetic accidents result in the offspring being dead because it doesn't work, but in a couple of occasions, it's worked. And as it has now doubled its chromosomes, this new plant can now reproduce sexually, so it's effectively like any other species, but because it's doubled its number of chromosomes, it no longer reproduces with the parental plant. So effectively, it's that we've got new species in Britain. In fact, we've got about half a dozen of them. In fact, Primula cuensis is, um, is there's a species that's entirely restricted to horticulture and started off with a hybridization event in Kew Gardens. So we've got, let's say, half a dozen new species. And interestingly, those, that's more than the total number of species extinctions that are known of plants in Europe in the last few hundred years, at least as listed by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. I suspect that there are some that, we, that aren't listed and, the, and that the list is incomplete. But it's not obvious in Europe, because of all of these introductions and hybridization, it's not obvious that the number of plant species in Europe is going down. The world total, in, the contribution of Britain in the last three centuries to world diversity has been surprisingly to increase the number of species on the planet. Wow. <laughs> You've won me over. Um, <laughs> given that what you're saying is that the introduction of non-native species has overall increased diversity, except with some very specific examples. Mm. Yeah. Why, why do we think it's decreased diversity? Is, is there something about non-native species that um, speaks for misconceptions about nature? I think there's two things. One is that there has been an in, inappropriate transfer of effectively blame from one kind of situation where invasive species are problematic. So a lot of these animals and plants that have evolved in isolation on Pacific and other Oce Oceanic islands have lived in places, for example, where there are no ground-living mammals which act as predators. And when we and rats and pigs and dogs and so on arrived, they, A, weren't afraid, B, couldn't escape fast enough, and by having several different mammals, um, the rats, for example, could um, polish off ground-living chicks. We could polish off the adults. And they're quite slow-growing animals, some of these things. And, they, and we were just killing them. These, all these mammals that arrived were killing them faster than they could reproduce. But it's extreme, and you get extinctions as well in isolated lakes when you get a completely different kind of um, fish, let's say, that is released into it. These isolated environments and something completely different arrives. That's when it tends to cause a problem. But in virtually all continental areas, as far as we know, the complete extermination of any species 
by an in invasive is incredibly rare. It's an unusual thing. But because they are problematic in some situations, I think we've <coughs> transferred that to, um, um, to situations where actually the issue is a different one. Right, so we and tend to think of isolated yeah. environments as the model for thinking about... I think that that's... So in, you know, in the scientific literature and the environmental conservation literature, invasive species are obviously are clearly a major have been at least in the last few thousand years have been a major cause of extinction therefore invasive species everywhere are a major problem right. so that's i think is part of the story and the other is that somehow or other we've ended up with this view a human view of the way that biology works that sort of there's a way that nature should be. But if you look at the British Isles and indeed increasing fractions of the entire pl planet, there is no way that nature's meant to be. We've messed the whole thing up already. And so, so, we, so at the moment, there's nothing correct about the current state of nature. And so, um, but what a lot of people seem to be doing mentally is when something else arrives, and clearly if you get some new plants arrive, let's say, even if they're not going to exterminate any of the ones that were there before, if they are use, if all these extra plants, these 2,000 extra plants, are using up 5%, 10% of the land surface, evidently there's going to be somewhat less space occupied by some of the plants that were there before. And um, so we often see this as a departure from how we think the state of the world somehow should be, and therefore these additions of new species are somehow seen as almost equivalent to an additional loss rather than a gain of species. But it's a bit bizarre that more rare, more species, and on average each of them being slightly rarer, that somehow when, as the world is, at least in Britain, is changing to be a little bit more like this potentially, that we're seeing this as a bad thing. But if we go to Amazonia, it's absolutely full of species, huge numbers, and large numbers of them are extremely rare. And we think of this as the heights of diversity. So we're having kind of, when things change, not necessarily in an objectively negative way. Well, we only have a human perspective of what is negative and positive, of course. But, but, it's, but it's a real challenge. I think that we are, we are very slippery in our thinking. And that we're... As I say, we're transferring blame from one location to other locations where it doesn't apply in anything like the same way. And when we get changes that um, somehow make us feel that the world is less how it used to be, then we tend to have a negative response to it. Um, but nature does change. Every biological process, be it ecology and evolution, is about dynamic change. And whatever we might like, as environmentalists as anyone, whatever we might like, we're not going to stop the world changing with or without us. And given how many of us there are on the planet and how much we're consuming and how much we, the land we need for farming and so on, um, um, it is inevitable that it's going to carry on changing. So rather than just grizzle about change the whole time, we should perhaps think about how we manage and modify that changes in ways that we find acceptable to us as citizens of the planet. Um, rather than try and keep things as they are, or for that matter, revert to some um, sort of rose-tinted vision of the past. Thank you. Um, perhaps we'll take a couple of questions for you before we move on. Anyone's got a question at this stage? Yeah? 
Can you just wait for the microphone to come? Thanks. Uh, thanks. I was just wondering if there are um, possibly like different ways to measure diversity. So if diversity as like number of species is like is, is, is one way of doing it and then you can say like diversity hasn't gone down with invasive species but it might be also sort of like relative proportions of different species so it could be say and I, I really don't know the details so I'm asking say like the grey squirrel has led to a massive reduction in the red squirrel and there's a there's a very dominant new species that might lead to a decrease on another measure of diversity don't ask a biologist how to measure <laughs> diversity, and I will be very kindly, won't bore you with endless details, but you're completely right that you can measure these things in different ways. In the context of the red and the grey squirrel, we used to have one, what well, we refer to and smile, native species, and now we have one dominant foreign species. But now, in large parts of the country, what was just one species of squirrel is now still just one species of squirrel, but it is a different species of squirrel. And it turns out the grey squirrel is better adapted to broad-leafed woodland, deciduous woodland that drops its leaves in the winter than the red squirrel is. Um, and there's little chance that a whole European scale, the grey squirrel would be able to exterminate the entire red. It's possible, but... Um, very unlikely. So yes, changes in abundance happen. So this was a sort of question actually that biologists had put to me and others and so I s decided to have a look at the data a bit um, because they say you know that the, these non-native species are becoming rampant and they're sort of exterminating lots of stuff and what we actually, so we looked at um, there's um, a program called the Countryside Survey Squares where every so often a whole bunch of um, botanists and other people go out and they um, look at areas of the countryside and they look and see what species are there and how abundant some of them are. And so what we did was to compare the abundance changes of so-called native species and that is to say arrived in the last 15,000 years versus non-native species, that is to say arrived in the last 2,000 years. And what we found was that the species that had changed their abundances the most, surprisingly, were native species, including increases. So things like stinging nettles were doing well, brambles are doing well, and so on. So that the species that had become of plant that had become had changed and become more common through time were predominantly actually native species and although some of the non-native species had increased some of the non-native species had decreased so there wasn't a kind of obvious big distinction there and what that the real message there is that the environment is indeed changing the abundances of species are changing but that the real drivers are other things going on in the countryside and both the native species and the non-native species are responding to these and changing their abundances as a consequence. Can, can I add something about, about, about the numbers and, and counting up biodiversity? Because as I understand it, quite often ecologists don't count the alien species that come in. They simply refuse to believe that they should be there or that they exist. Oh, so, yeah. they, so they only count what they regard as the yep. native species. So if you... Discount, discount all the yep. other ones. So yep, totally. that, that way, you, you know, our biodiversity can only 
the number of species yeah, that's can right. only go down. So very often. They, they don't count the other stuff, even though everything else is moving around. Yeah. I find that, you know, I mean, as an outsider, I find that really weird. And yes. they're left out of um, checklists and floras quite often as well, yeah. like this, yeah. the yeah. big stace that you would use for wildflower recognition in the UK. I think uh, he did include some, but... Mm. You know, you, you mm. might not even be able to identify them because yeah. you wouldn't e yeah. they wouldn't even be yeah. in the floor. Yeah. Yeah. Just pretend they're not there. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you see news reports of what's happening to biodiversity indicators, for example, mm. normally they do not have... They, they, it is just the status of what, what happens to the abundances of the previously native species. And if you think about it, this is actually destined for decline because um, it's almost bound to be. Because if you start with the state of the world in a particular place and start monitoring it, and everything is dynamic, you're going to move away from that baseline through time. So you have to be very careful that you don't construct these things in a way where it is an absolute certainty that that movement away from the baseline um, is going to result in the apparent appearance of decline. There's another weird thing that happens is that um, species can be both endangered and invasive yeah. because they're endangered in their, in their sort of natural habitat. Um, I mean, there's a, the cocky frog in, in Puerto Rico is one that, one that comes to mind, which is endangered in its natural habitat because most, most of the forests were, were, not, were destroyed. But it is regarded as, as, as an invasive species in the Hawaiian Islands, where it's, going, it's running riot and everybody's, everybody's really cry. So you have, and it, quite a lot of species are both endangered and invasive. I mean, you know... Fred I don't Rats. think that's functioning ecology. I mean, I think, <laughs> I, think, I think this is a problem not for nature. This is a problem for ecologists. Right, for, for how we think about these things. Yeah, we're just getting it wrong. But I, that's, my, a bit, that's a bit unfair to all as a card I mean, As a card-carrying ecologist, I would say <laughs> I would defend my... I would, I would simply spread the blame to a much wider proportion of society. Uh, well, of, probably in environment. like me, I don't Yeah, guess. they're always <laughs> getting it right. <laughs> Uh, Fred, perhaps you can tell us a little yeah. bit more about this demonisation of, of non-native and or invasive species and what you think the causes of that are. Well, I think, I mean, Chris has touched on it, but I mean, I think there are two things. Well, I mean, there, there's the personal thing and there's the sort of academic environment. Which, you know, a lot of us, you know, we, we, we recoil a bit at the unfamiliar that if some change happens, some <laughs> species or plant shows up or some people that show up sometimes, and we sort of recall a bit, do we, do we want them? So there's a sort of natural, I suppose, conservatism. You know, well, the, the same word as conservation. You know, you, you see a lot of conservationists are really very conservative people. So we, so, except, I mean, except there are, I mean, there are exceptions. There are some of the alien species that we make honorary natives, um, just because we like them, really. Um, so rabbits are, I guess, a reasonable example of that, though they've been around a thousand years. But the edible dormouse, which is called edible because the Romans ate them. Um, and I, I think I'm right, it's only been around in the UK about, about 100 years, and it's, still, it's, it's been made a protected species already. It's kind of, you know, it's got a pass for some reason. Um, and why? The only reason, why is that? Do you well, think? What, what, what distinction? Because it's people cute? Like I mean, okay. I, mean, I, I don't think there's any scientific rationale okay. for it. I people who live in the Chilterns don't yeah. like it because it goes <laughs> oh, in right. ro it roosts in their, in their roofs and so on. In which case, I'm surprised that the people of the Chilterns haven't got it taken off the list. Yeah. Anyway, but it is, but it is protected. Is it the case that the edible dormouse 
mice were introduced to this country by the Romans, so there are bones found in our archaeological. And then they context, went away again. Yeah. And then they were reintroduced. That's right. No, but they were reintroduced. You're quite right. You are correct. Yeah. Um, I think uh, the other thing is, I think it is the way that. Again, I'm going to criticise ecologists here, and my apologies, but um, the way that a lot of ecological thinking has gone. We have these ideas about sort of climax ecosystems, a sort of sense that a, a, re a really good ecosystem, a rainforest or whatever it was, was somehow perfected. I mean, Darwin never thought of evolution as producing perfection, though Lamarck did. Um, but this idea, and ecologists took this idea very strongly, especially um, during the a lot of the 20th century, this idea that somehow ecosystems were perfect and couldn't be improved, and everything had co-evolved to work within this system. And if you have that idea about, if you like, how nature works, then anything that comes in from outside can't really have a role, it can't find a role, it's just disruptive, it's just causing damage. So if you take that view, and a lot of well, some ecologists, an awful lot of conservationists and environmentalists, I think, just instinctively take that view, that, that we need to preserve these perfect, perfect systems um, and, and prevent them from being damaged by invader species or whatever it, else it is. But there's, to caricature slightly, there's a, there's a completely different um, view of ecology which sees most ecosystems being very temporary, uh, being kind of transient, species coming in and out. and I mean, not because of human activity, but just normally. Um, so if you take that view, then there's nothing intrinsically bad about an alien species coming in, a foreign species coming in. Um, it may do something which you regard as harm, or it may not, but there's nothing intrinsically bad about it. So I think, I think if you put these two, the sort of personal side and the sort of the academic traditions of, um, of a kind of conservation thinking, um, put them together, it's quite a powerful kind of argument. I mean, I think that's wrong. I mean, I think we shouldn't be trying... I mean, there's a case of preserving endangered species because they could be part of the mix for, for future evolution. But I think we probably should also be thinking about conserving the dynamism of nature. I mean, that's the essence of nature, is that it's got by through all sorts of crises over, you know, hundreds of millions of years. Um, and it does it because it can evolve and develop, and, you know, this is something which Chris writes about in his book a lot. Um, and it's the dynamism that we want to uh, uh, keep. So my, my view about alien species is that often they're part of the solution and not part of the problem because they're often the most dynamic species, a species that can move in and sort of uh, grow fast and, and develop. We, we begin to think of it as a problem, but you can look at it the other way around. You can see it as kind of sort of nature's go-getters, nature's colonists, nature's um, troublemakers may be. But those are probably the species that we need if we want to revive ecosystems in the 21st century. I mean, I really think we need to you know, we really need to revive nature. It had a huge amount of damage done it to in the 20th century. So I think I'm with sort of mainstream ecologists saying we need to revive nature, rewilding or whatever you want to call it in the 21st century. Just that I rather think that invasive species are part of the solution and not part of the problem. Thanks. I mean, it's one of the issues here that we find it hard to distinguish what's good for us economically mm. uh, from what's good for nature more broadly. 
Yeah, I think we get those two confused. Um, and, you know, we can, if we've got a species that's coming in that's really messing up our gardens or, uh, or is bringing, you know, it's a, it's a disease that's, that's knocking out our trees, of course we want to do something about it. Um, and that's reasonable. And especially, you know, if, we, if we're in the Anthropocene now, I mean, that's, uh, we've, we've got really no choice but to manage those kind of things. But um, I think we should be careful about pretending that when we're doing that, we're helping nature anyway, because we may be damaging nature's ability to adapt and evolve and move on and colonize areas that we've messed up. So I think we should be a bit careful. I mean, as I say, I'm not, sure, I'm not saying that we shouldn't want to intervene at various times of various species, but we should remember that we're doing it for us and not for nature. Right, so we should be careful about being disingenuous about our yeah. motivation. I think, and I think, I, I think we, you know, we're quite slippery. We can, we can do that quite a lot. But it's not just about being disingenuous, is it? It's mm. also like surprise, the surprise effect mm. uh, where you, know, you, you get rid of an invasive species and then you get a surprise. Mm. But yeah, surprises do happen from time to time. Nobody would have guessed that the Japanese knotweed or something like that would take yeah. off. But you might, or, or, or another one might, uh, uh, something else comes to fill the gap. It's mm. not, you don't restore. You don't restore. Yeah, time point. doesn't really have a reverse gear. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You might just make something else, the invasive species in that gap. Mm. Right. That's true. I mean, that, you're, you're, you're quite right. And when we're managing any kind of environment, uh, yeah, stuff can happen that is a bit disruptive. <laughs> but I think, I think we kind of have to embrace that a bit now. I mean, I don't think we're in a world where... Well, I don't think we were ever in a world where things were kind of stable and not changing, and therefore, if you left things alone, nothing much would happen. So I think we've got to get a bit more real about, about um, how nature works, and sometimes, yeah, it's disruptive. So, Fred, you're saying intervention is fine sometimes. Yeah. When? Can you give us a, some, some guidelines about when and how to intervene? Well, um, I mean, I think if you've got something like Japanese knotweed and, and a, a number of these uh, foreign species that have done quite a lot of damage in people's gardens, and they, you know, if you read the, some versions, they're, they're sort of destroying houses, foundations, and all that kind of thing. I mean, we want to do something. <laughs> We don't want to do I, don't, I don't think Chris is having any. No, of no, 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 no. No, sometimes they are. Sometimes they yeah. can be. They can be really inconvenient. But it's it's actually a pretty rare plant um, at a at a national. Well, because you were saying level. earlier that you had you had. Some yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that right. Was, was that's right. That was attacking your foundation. Yeah, that's right. Not, I wasn't quite clear whether you were cheering it on or whether. You were <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. No, I mean, but I agree with you. We, yeah. you know, we do. But think about something like Japanese knotweed. It's, it's, a lot of people will tend to say it's a scourge in the, in the environment and it's damaging biodiversity in Britain. Well, it's, actually, it's not at all. It is a problem in gardens. It's a problem on uh, disturbed land, roadside verges, uh, along canals, cemeteries, that kind of thing. But out in the countryside, it's very rare. But three-quarters of the reason, in my mind, that it's, it, is, it is in some occasions a problem but, but, um, it's a problem for us, not for, for the but, wider nature. Yeah, but part of it is a problem we've made for ourselves because we have legislated about its extermination, and that then gets in the way of our building projects, etc., as much as the yes. uh, issue of that the plant is going to cause direct harm. Oh, you can't harm. sell your house because everybody's scared because it's Japanese. That's property. right. Oh, it's, 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 well, in fact, yeah, I know someone whose mortgage lender wouldn't lend mm, on yeah, the basis yeah, that there yeah. was... Not weed. So when you read sometimes, as, as I do, 
really scary numbers for you know, how many millions or billions of pounds um, of damage is being done to Britain by alien species, you suddenly discover that these, it's not actually sort of physical damage done, it's damage to people's property prices, which, which have, have, have to do with the way that we react. And also, so it, it, they can count rabbits. Mm -hmm. They can count. Um, and one of these figures, the, a, a ginormous, you know, hundreds of billions figure for the US, counts yeah. flu. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's... And, you know, in days lost yeah. to work. But, uh, but even the when very you, large yeah. figures you see oh, yeah. about mm. the cost of invasive. But even so when every, every mouse in the US has, has got a value of about twenty dollars on it, is <laughs> the damage it does. <laughs> God knows where that number came from. But, but even even when it even when it's a sort of it's not one of those things like flu or um, it. A lot of those costs are voluntary costs because we have decided that we would like to exterminate or reduce the abundance or something. So the big, for something like rhododendron, for example, I believe we spend more money on trying to exterminate that, even though species of rhododendron uh, used to live in the British Isles um, in a previous warm period of few hundred thousand years ago so it's if you like it's a return of the nearly native um, but we are spending more money on trying to exterminate that than any other plant and that is an expression of human desire as to how we would like the landscape and nature to be rather than a direct cost yeah. that the plant is right. is inevitably doing to us so yeah so I mean all most most of the numbers that, you, that you'll ever see reported are complete and absolute nonsense they really are because <laughs> As Chris says, they're not, they're not based on real damage. They're based on sort of weird... But we're still spending it. You still haven't given me an answer. You said we were allowed to intervene in certain mm. cases. Yeah. And then the knotweed came up and... Yeah. You, are, you are allowed to get rid of knotweed. Okay. Definitely. We've just got to get real about it. I mean, think about knotweed. It's hard. It's, it's right. really hard. The panel will vote, yes, you can <laughs> sometimes okay. get rid of knotweed. <laughs> say about knotweed is yes it's a problem in gardens and, 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 and we might want to do something about that without without you know creating real scare problems with you know house prices which is largely unnecessary but it's not actually a problem in the countryside i mean the the, the hot spot for japanese knotweed in the uk is swansea which i think is the only city in the it's the only only town in the world with a Jap, with a japanese knotweed officer in the local council wow. Um, it's quite a busy chat because I mean there is um, if I was leaving you my PowerPoint presentation I'd show you some scary pictures of Japanese knotweed in Swansea right over the border for I mean right next door to Swansea is the Gower Peninsula which is a highly you know regarded natural or relatively natural area everybody loves the Gower Peninsula there are no Japanese knotweed in the Gower Peninsula because it doesn't jump into nature uh, in fact, yesterday I was, in, I was in Germany having a debate with, with somebody about, about this same issue with somebody um, complaining about Japanese knotweed in Germany, in the Black Forest area. And she said the same thing. She said, yeah, we have real problems with Japanese knotweed in the gardens, but there's no Japanese knotweed in the, in the Black Forest. It doesn't go there. So again, you know, we can get... Well, you know there's only one... I can't remember which one it is, but there's only one gender of the plant got mm. introduced to Europe, so it only reproduces by fragments. It doesn't sexually reproduce and set seed. Now, if we wanted to have a great fun in Europe, we'd add the other gender and then really see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Slightly horrific idea. <laughs> um, Japanese have probably thought of it. Um, OK, should we take a couple of questions for Fred at this stage? 
Yeah, the lady in the front. It seemed to switch a bit uh, indiscriminately between non-native and invasive. Mm. But I come from Australia, where you know, white folk came in and they've made more mammals extinct than actually exist in the whole UK biota, native, so-called native biota. But is it not the case not that now we've introduced so many? There are actually more mammals. Foxes in and cats did, did a lot of the work for us. Yeah, <laughs> um, but is it not the case, and uh, you know, particularly again in Australia, that agriculture has actually uh, arguably been the biggest invasive change? Sheep and goats made the Sahara and the Mesopotamian desert and Australian deserts. So it's. Um, and almost all of our garden plants are non-native, although very few have actually turned invasive. But effectively, what we do by way of gardening and farming is almost entirely non-native species, many of which are really, we, we manage them in totally invasive numbers. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Exactly what you say, I think, I think is right, that... Um Everybody blamed rabbits in Australia. You know, rabbits had run right, and they were, you know, they were knocking down the fences, and there were, there were millions of them, and they were, they were destroying the landscape. And most of the, most of the original landscape had been really messed up by sheep, but the sheep farmers wanted to blame the rabbits, so that's kind of how that happened. Um, I mean, you can't, you can't say anything other than the Australian um, landscape and its, uh, and, its, and its range of species has been fantastically, hugely transformed by... Um, by the arrival of Europeans, you know, there's no doubt about that at all. But um, you know, they've actually got more biodiversity than they had before. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's worth weighing in the balance. No, they've lost 50 mammals. 54. A lot of those mammals were lost 55,000 years ago when the first Aboriginal population. This is since, this is since um, white folk arrived. Name them. <laughs> Name them, yeah. I'd, I I would need to check. Um, so virtually all, uh, with the exception of um, a c couple of kangaroos, uh, virtually all of the mammals that were native, land mammals and some of the large lizards that were native to Australia were exterminated following the arrival of um the Aboriginal population originally, these can be timed quite clearly to about 55,000 years ago. Um, then there was another additional slight phase that arrived, um, uh, I think it's about eight, 10,000 years ago when the dingoes arrived. The dingoes are relatively much more recent arrival. And yes, there has been a big spate of further extinctions, but quite a lot of them still survive on offshore islands or in Tasmania, for example. So I'd be quite surprised if it was that number that you say, um, but um, I'm, I'm always happy to be wrong. It means I've learned something. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's still an argument going on in Australia, as I'm sure you know, about whether the dingo should be regarded as native after 5,000 years or whatever it is. Yeah. But, it's not, you know, it's but it's now an interesting challenge in Australia because now they've got the debate is over things like camels, for example, because yeah. given that the very large, um, for example, the, um, there used to be a wombat that was close to rhinoceros size, um, and, um, and that's extinct. So should we now regard 
the feral buffalo from that have come from southern Asia and the camels that have come in should we so there's a real debate amongst Australian ecologists as to whether the vegetation in the long run in Australia would be better off by having effectively these replacement herbivores going around browsing and grazing the vegetation or whether you should just exterminate everything that doesn't come from Australia and there is no uh, no consensus at the moment. Thanks. Uh, it's actually almost a little bit of a follow-on from that, but I, I've sort of been thinking about this sort of slightly convoluted theory. But you know, t taking those examples of oceanic um, or uh, sort of island extinctions in Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, places like that, it seems fairly, and you know, things like the dodo and so on. It seems fairly clear to me that there's been a reduction in global biodiversity thanks to species invasions. Is that right? The, yes, the, well, the number of species, so if you take all of the species in the, on the planet and you mix them all up, some species are not compatible with others and die out. And the total number of species on the planet is now smaller than it used to be as a consequence of biological invasions, particularly if you can include humans as an invasive species. Um, but the number of species per country, paradoxically, has increased. And as I said, the number of species of plant in the last few hundred years, as far as we know, the total number of plant species in um, North America as well as in Europe seems to be that more species have come into existence than died out in that period. And so I have argued in my book Inheritors of the Earth that in the very long run all of these species that we have moved around the world um, will start to diverge in their new homes and we may indeed generate, effectively generate a long-term mass diversification. It seems to me that there's a kind of, I mean, I'm sure you addressed this in your book, and I'm, I'm sorry I haven't read it, but like, it feels like there's a sort of disconnect in terms of the timescales where this mass exchange of animal populations and plants between continents has been happening for, on a, on a serious scale for 50 years, really, with sort of... Um, no, it's been much longer. But in terms of, I think it, it's accelerating, obviously it's been happening, but, but in terms of you know, things like um, the creation of the Panama Canal. For mammals and birds, the ballpark estimate, nobody's got a good estimate of this, it doesn't exist, but a ballpark estimate that about two-thirds of the species of mammals and birds which have been exterminated by humans and the invasive species that we have moved died out before 500 years ago, earlier than that. So even if it's 500 years compared to evolutionary timescales, especially if you're thinking of mammals and birds, that's a kind of happening over millennia, if not millions of years. And so my kind of, what I was thinking is, we've seen this process happen very quickly on, on, on islands, in isolated populations, and not just literal islands, but also uh, ecosystems that function as, as islands. It's happened very quickly, it's kind of been accelerated because those species are more adapted to living in those environments. Is there perhaps, are we just not seeing those species exterminated yet all around the world because it's happening more slowly? So are we just seeing this kind of globalization of nature where, like, you know, New Zealand and Britain, they're essentially now converging towards having the same fauna, yes, more in each country, but overall a, a smaller number? 
But is that like the McDonaldization of world biodiversity? Yeah, so we have a smaller, you know, we have a globalization of culture, we have less different things overall. But is it, the, the thing is, I, 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 sorry to, I, I think that what the, one of the issues that perhaps we're, that isn't explicit, is that island, uh, the species on islands often represent, um, they, they can be tiny little, uh, tiny little populations. Like for example, if you look at Madagascar, it's a huge, it, huge percentage of the species are endemic. And, and so the way that extinction happens in those places, it is, it is kind of a separate category. It very much is. And for, it turns out that most of the extinctions um, that have been caused by invasive species and, are, and the ongoing ones are being caused by about 10 non-native species at the moment. Um, um, so on those oceanic islands, the, there were no... Um, there was occasionally bird malaria, but there weren't any mosquitoes that could transmit it. So a lot of the Hawaiian birds have died out because continental diseases arrived and the native birds were not resistant to them. And admittedly, the non-native birds could help the disease going, where they were more or less resistant to it. Um, and so you've got a situation there where essentially all continental birds have some resistance to this kind of disease so they're not about to die out from the same reason there was a subset of birds that were susceptible to it similarly there's a subset of birds on these oceanic islands that can't deal with land living mammals but if you go to if you so these flightless disproportionately flightless birds and large heavy-bodied birds died out from these oceanic islands when invasive predators arrive. If you look at similar kinds of birds, even in Australia where they survive pretty well um, and right through the main continents. So we've got pheasants for example. They're a walking bird. They're quite fat but they can still fly if they're attacked by a terrestrial mammal. So they've got an escape mechanism. It's the same with the mallee fowl in Australia and then the, the flightless birds that we've got on the bigger continents pack a big kick and actually they can run fast so they can escape from predators so it was a category of um, the category of type of bird that just couldn't cope with what came from the continents the, these islands were missing effectively a functional group of animals ground living mammals and a type of types of disease and their vector that are on the continent and there's no there are some things happening on the continent, diseases of amphibians, for example, is the particularly the biggest example. But there's no particular reason that the sorts of things we saw on the, seen on those islands is going to then happen over longer timescales on the continents. We've looked, and as far as we can, on timescales of centuries, and in most cases, problems don't seem to get worse. And it also highlights that really important question, which is... How do you value uh, a species which m maybe only has, you know, that we may only know 100 individuals? Is that, is that incredible because it's so unique? Or is it to be valued slightly less because it's, you know, is it because this, it's a very small population? That is a philosophical question in the end. That is not, 
That's what we're here for. Yeah. 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 And and you know, I don't. There's no easy answer no. to for for people who try to measure biodiversity about what priorities should be. Well, let me let me. I mean, let me. I mean, I think there's a really interesting question that you raised here. I mean, is there a balance between global biodiversity and local biodiversity? Is is it a good thing or a bad thing yeah. if there's more local biodiversity but less global biodiversity? I mean, I don't think we know the answer to that really, but you could make the case that local biodiversity matters more because a lot of ecology shows um, convincingly to me at any rate that biodiversity is really about just the number of species around is really valuable for making an ecosystem more kind of resilient in the face of climate change or whatever yeah. whatever comes along so local biodiversity is really really important in just helping um, some system get I mean it'll probably evolve and change but, you know, make, keeping a forest a forest and just letting it adapt to whatever shows up. I'm not sure that there is any particular evidence, tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm not sure there's any particular evidence that global biodiversity actually matters that much. Um, maybe it'll matter more when there are more species moving around and maybe we're, you know, maybe there's a, a kind of... The only thing one could add to that is that global diversity might be a bit of an insurance policy yeah. for us in the context that we have no idea what humans are going to do to the planet over the next thousand years and the more different types of things yeah. are in existence I would, I somewhere the more are going to be available to make those future ecosystems that we yeah. currently can't imagine I, think, I, but, say, I mean I would I would want to exterminate global diversity on the, on the, on the, on the altar of but ultimately this is a human decision it's a really interesting yeah. question Emma perhaps we can think about this historically um, a bit more and, and particularly in the way that kind of colonialist, imperialist histories have played out in relation to introduction yeah. of non-native species? Well, I am quite interested in, in looking at it, uh, in looking at the whole idea of being invasive uh, historically. Yeah. Um, because when you think back to the 17th century, you know, when you think about us, I say us, the English people, um, uh, you know, planting co uh, colonies. They, it's called planting. You plant America, you, you make a plantation there. Um, we, we are travelling with our crops and our livestock. Uh, it, it, at that point, the idea of an invasive species doesn't exist at all. It's, it's actually a very positive thing. You get somebody like um, Linnaeus in the 18th century. In the 18th century, you have the idea of improvement, um, you will set off uh, to improve. There's this idea that, that, as you were saying, it's sort of like the, the idea of the perfected rainforest. What, you set, what happens in, in the 17th and 18th century is people believing that, there's an, that, it's, that the world is improvable. So, for example, Linnaeus, who we know as uh, incredibly influential in the history of the science of taxonomy, but also had this whole project where he was going to slowly acclimatise um, things like bananas to the Swedish climate um, by mo growing them slowly in more northerly, in, uh, more northerly um, uh, gardens, uh, uh, various crops. So he was going to kind of push the boundary back of the temperate world. Um, uh, and so it's a rather sort of idealistic uh, 
no, and there were, no climat there were acclimatisation yeah. societies, weren't they, which were dedicated to taking Amazing. species around the world. Yeah, which I didn't know about this one, which is in your book, uh, I think, about, mm. about birds yeah. in America. Well, there's there a guy in America who decided he wanted to introduce to America all the bird species that were in Shakespeare's plays. <laughs> And he got quite a hundred. No, it was only about. It, it, it's it's quite lucky, really, that Shakespeare was such a such a hopeless <laughs> ornithologist. <laughs> You're probably right. But he had a good go. You know? But yeah, and there's this wonderful fact about the mm. fact that you know there's there's I think this word starling is mentioned once mm. in Shakespeare, yeah. Yeah. and as a result, a hundred yes. starlings were brought, yeah, uh, uh, imported into. Um, Central, York, Central, Central Park, Park in New York, yeah. Released in Central yeah. Park, and now... I don't know how many billions, but... They're, they're the biggest... They're, they're, they're the most, they're the most numerous profligate single, bird in North America, yeah. yeah. <laughs> As a result of somebody's little fantasy about Shakespeare. Thank you, Will. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I just I think it's really interesting to think about the fact that um, the idea of, of, of plants and animals being invasive, it's it seems to me that it comes about uh, at the end of the 19th century, there's a moment where uh, uh, here we become insecure about our hold on the world. And so, for example, like in the 1880s, you get people, for the first time, um, they are worrying about apple imports and people start to make um, a record people start to get anxious and join apple societies and make records of all the local breeds of apple or um, you know, start hunting, understanding that wildflowers could um, be ext um, become extinct. It, it, it's almost like there's a sort of, the, that moment at which Victorian confidence goes, you know, around, the, it's before the Boer War, but you know, at that point where men are, are being conscripted for the Boer War and then being turned away because they haven't actually grown tall enough to be in the army and carry um, the weapons they need to carry. At the same time, there's that anxiety about the sort of um, British body in that sense. There's also the, the kind of the body of British native flora and fauna. We suddenly go, oh, hang on a minute. Um, it's under threat. And it's only at that point you suddenly get people talking about invasive species. And yet... One of the reasons there are invasive species, I don't know where the figure came from, it may be from you, that, um, that so many invasive species escaped from botanic gardens. Mm. Mm. Um, Lantana, which is like in state of the world's plants, this is the Q report that came out about a month ago, um, Lantana, uh, a really, 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 really serious threat. Uh, yeah, escaped from the... In Australia, escaped from the Botanic Garden in Melbourne, I think. I think it was Melbourne, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that all seems so, such a sort of interesting shift. So now, we, now we're worried about invasives. You, you know, newspaper stories about spiders, your, your spiders. But also, it's like Facebook. Uh, I, I've noticed lots of people... Is fretting at the moment about well, it is quite often spiders. Um, <laughs> it's quite, people have strong people feelings about spiders. Talking on the internet this autumn about 
um, fa uh, false widows, having little kind of fretty mm. moments about that. About, about the idea of an invasive spider and oh, when it bites you, it's, it, it, it'll swell up. And then other people go, no, it won't. It's amazing there are any Australians still alive, really, isn't it? <laughs> given given yeah. how dangerous spiders are. Actually getting into arguments about whether or, well, or, or, whether or not you will, it will become an infected pussy mess. Um, but this, uh, I mean, it feels like a kind of global thing. I mean, not something which, you know, is a result of the British Empire peaking and, um, and we're, we're there is a higher frequency of non statistically across the world though there is a higher frequency of non-native species that have been introduced to former uh, countries within particularly the British Empire and to so some we, extent we, we other, anyway. other um, yeah. Western European powers that's no that's right but I was thinking, oh, I was thinking in terms of really where, where the angst figure. came from and whether that yeah. was whether we started the angst as well as the uh, as the invasion. I mean, I like this phrase you use, Greg, uh, green xenophobia. Yeah. Because um, I think it does seem to be a kind of xenophobia, the, the, the kind of language that's being. Yeah. So, used could I ask sure. Emma a question whether. Was that at the same time that there were changes in people's attitudes to other peoples from other locations? Did those go in parallel or were they completely different things? That's a really interesting question that I probably have to think about for longer than... <laughs> yeah. No, but... Uh, I don't... Uh, yeah. Today, I don't see a particular correlation. I don't see that people who are racist are more likely to hate invasive species or vice versa. But I see very much so the we same... we could get some stats on that. that we could. Anyway. I don't... But, um, but, 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 but I kind of see them as quite similar syndromes of thinking. Well, they certainly yeah, well, similar language. Said, yes. you, yeah. you know, you can... Yeah, it yeah. is similar language. But there's no shame in hating invasive species, it seems. I mean, when I tweeted mm. oh, that, no, my colleague was like, oh, fix it. Look, what, I hope you're going to find uh, a, a fix for them. And amongst about some us. groups of people, it is a source of pride. Yeah. Your hatred for them. It is a. It is your. It is an assertion of your how British you think the British animals and plants should be. Almost, you know. It's a. It's it's a well, slightly unnerving thing. Had a, had a line on. Had an ecological uh, front uh, somewhere, which which is based around this. I mean, uh, that's a bit bizarre, but but they they did it. Wow. They they, fa they adopted the language because it was just too convenient not to. I think so. They have a they have an ecological policy as a result. Ah. Well, I wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't want to uh, You've got take that too far, but it's curious. Up. Okay, let's take some questions then. Um, two at the back, maybe we'll take the two at the same time. And, um, Just a quick one. Um, it's interesting that you're talking about the invasive species in the British context, and if they are or they're not British, but aren't nations invented by us anyway, so why does it matter? if they were from here or not, if they're British or not. That's just a bit... Yeah, it's mad. Yeah. <laughs> and particularly if we add climate change, everything's moving its distribution anyway. So the idea of native di distribution under those circumstances is if it made any sense 100 years ago, it certainly doesn't any longer. If, if, if I want to annoy environmental groups, I will point out that, that many of them are, are still virulently against alien species, they regard them as probably, the, you know, after humans, the, the number one threat to ecology, to ecosystems around the planet. But they will, at the same time, talk 
about the need for um, migration corridors for species so that they can keep up with climate change. And I'm not sure whether you can really sort of take, um, hold, ride both those horses at the same time. If you, you know, if you're going to have migration corridors so that people can, that species can move, then I think you have to recognise that species are going to move. I, I, just, just to sort of answer your question though about, although national boundaries are clearly arbitrary, the reason that you, that arguably. You, it, it's useful to have, like, for example, a national checklist. It's just because you, you cannot know what has gone if you don't know what was there to start with. I know that sounds sort of like I'm stating the obvious, but that's why you need to know. You just, it, it, you can't, you, you, you literally, you can't sort of do the work unless you know yeah. what was there to start And it's with. also political realism. We live in countries, and yeah. if you're going to do yeah. anything in, with nature... That's what we've got. But it does get a bit difficult when you start bringing in the European Union. I mean, I hate to sort of sound a bit like a Brexiteer, but um, the European Union has now, has, now, has now written a list of species that are regarded as invasive and dangerous for the whole of Europe, so that you have species which are absolutely no problem at all in Britain, but can be a bit invasive in the waterways of Spain, are now sort of verboten across the whole of the whole of Europe because they're a problem in one particular country, which um, I think is a, as an example of somewhat perverse sort of political outcome. Of it went both ways. Well, that, that that is true. I think what's what is why that happens. It, it has to be said that horticulture is one of the biggest problems in terms of invasive species yeah, that's right. uh, you know in terms of it, it, even yeah. in terms of things like uh, the uh, ash borer beetle mm. you know which you think oh ash trees what how is that affected by horticulture but actually horticulturalists transport large numbers mm. of fully grown trees across Europe every year and so so even pro even tree problems are created by gardeners um, yeah Sorry, thank you. Um, this, I was just going to say, firstly, off this is a very interesting conversation. It's not really a perspective I've heard discussed in many other um, f forums, so thank you for that. Um, I think my question was, so if we're not... I feel like maybe the conversation is going away from possibly... Well, I'd like to ask, can the conversation be redirected from, say, biodiversity for the sake of biodiversity and to possibly something like resilience of these, spe of these habitats as a whole? Because species don't exist in isolation from one another, they interact with one another in a very dynamic and, and ever-changing way. And, and also thinking about the resilience of those habitats in what could be quite a short um, period of time, both geographically and ecologically, in terms of the effects of climate change. So will, as possibly some people imagine, invasive species, um, oh, this maybe will's a, a strong word, but would it affect the, uh, do you think it will affect the resilience of habitats over the short term uh, in terms of climate change, trying to remove ourselves from all the other impacts that humans have? Um, or do you think it can actually benefit the resilience of those habitats and the roles they play in interacting with each other? So, for example, you know, riparian habitats and silt washing into marine habitats and all those sort of things. Sorry, I know that's a very broad question, but thank you. Thank you. Do you want to go at that? That's a tough one. <laughs> well, um, so first of all, um, uh, just a, a sort of word of language about sort of what you mean by habitats, and I'll sort of answer it re 
rhetorically that, that the problem with the definition of a habitat is essentially it's an assemblage of species that are in a particular place at a particular time of a particular abundance. And we know from the history of life on Earth over the last, um, um, over the last million years, really, and um, that when the environment changes, for example, in past um, changes of the climate when we've gone into ice ages and then back into temporary warm periods, back into cold periods, that the sets of species that exist in any location change. But they don't all move together. They move at different um, rates and in, often in different directions. So the exact sets of species we have in our habitats now are essentially an assemblage of those species that have arrived and established at this particular time. And as the environment changes in the future, then somewhat different sets of species and different relative abundances are going to exist instead. And that changeover indeed can help maintain resilience. So if, for example, an area has got a forest and um, it starts to get drier, if species of tree that can cope with drier conditions move in, then that forest might in some senses be more resilient in the future. Now, as the climate changes, um, the home advantage, if you like, of the species that were present in a place will start to go away and the so-called non-native species, including invasive species, will increasingly be on an equal footing. We have to realize that in the present day, so we've already heard Fred referring to the problem that conservationists think that species need to keep up with climate change. And this is quite interesting because in the context of climate change, there is no doubt whatsoever that certainly for plants and probably for most groups of animals as well, humans are now the main dispersal agent. We move more things, more at least over long distances, than kind of any other mechanism. So some people are seeing that as the problem, and as Fred said, you could turn it on its head and see that is the solution. So if new things come in, you've still got some ecosystem, still, let's say you've got a forest growing, but it's now, so in the foothills of the Alps, there's a wonder, extraordinarily interesting forest where deciduous forest is turning into broad-leafed evergreens, and, but most of those species can come from Asia or North America or somewhere else in the world because there aren't very many species of broad-leafed evergreen that are native to Europe. They mostly died out in the Ice Ages. And so whether you should think that this is now, there's now a forest, and it's a vigorous forest, but it's a very different composition. And it is really how we as humans decide we're going to respond to this as to whether we now think, okay, it's now more resilient because we've got these non-native species in the system, or it's somehow a, it's moved away from how we think it should be. It would be really, really useful if we could measure resilience, but I don't think anybody knows how to measure resilience really, yeah, do they? Yeah. Um, you kind of, you, you watch a system until it crashes, and then you say, that wasn't very resilient, was it? Um, and while it doesn't crash, you think it's resilient. I, so I think that's a, I mean, that's a really difficult concept. Um, heck, that's why I was trying to avoid answering the question, really. Um, it, it's, I, I don't think we can measure it. And, you know, we can have sort of theoretical ideas about how it works, and that's, you know, one view of, of as we're kind of saying it, of... of uh, of ecology is, is is that that assemblage of species as a sort of as a sort of pristine or 
uh, co-evolved set of species must be the most resilient. But some people will say that actually that's um, a sign of vulnerability. Yeah, and what you need is, is sort of the seed of, of other species coming in to give it more resilience. I don't, you know, it's a continuing argument. Thanks. Um, I can see lots of hands, but I do want to try and bring this back to a philosophical question for a moment before I go back to the audience. I mean, all of you are presupposing that it is our role to intervene in some way, that because we are already intervening in everything we do, unconsciously, um, in the environment, it's also our role to consciously make decisions which will alter the paths of the natural world around us, things that are happening around us. Um, what, what kind of role of the human does this presuppose? Are we here to manage the world around us? Well, except, except that there are so many really lovely examples of us intervening in cases about invasive species and then it not really going very well. It is, it is quite... It is quite uh, it's quite interesting. So we think we're managing things and then nature always... Well, not always. Okay, so one positive thing that people are doing uh, in, in this country, uh, the, the woodland, various um, organisations entrusted with looking after trees have instructed and trained a load of sort of citizen scientists to look for... Um, to look at trees in parks or open landscapes that they're assigned and they need to go and look at those uh, trees a certain amount of times a year and check them for invasive uh, pests and or signs of illness. Um, you know, so that's one way that, uh, that people are involved. And then, and then the argument is, you know, immediately act to remove those trees. Then you have other people saying, like, so for example, with ash trees, then you have other people going, well, 10% of ash trees, it's something like that, are going to be immune to uh, ash dieback anyway. We should just leave it to, to, to kind let of it work. Roll. If, yeah, let <laughs> it roll, exactly. Because whatever we do, you're, it's, like, it's, it's like King Canute. It's standing on the beach and going, don't come in, see. But the way, the way we look at rewilding is quite interesting because it seems to me that there are, there are, um, there are sort of two approaches to, to rewilding. Some people think rewilding is putting back old wild landscapes. So, you know, well, you know, 500 years ago or whenever we think was the sort of baseline that we want to look at, there were those species. So we're going to reintroduce those and put them back in and try and sort of reassemble an old ecosystem as it once was presumably thinking that then it will, it will all work fine. Um, but then there's another view which, which basically says, no, we shouldn't be in that kind of management game at all. We should just stand back and see what shows up, see what does well, what does badly, and not take a view about what should be there, but just uh, let it be wild and, and see what happens. And you, um, in the, there's, quite, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of debate about, what, about rewilding now, and lots of people want to do rewilding, especially all over Europe and elsewhere. But there do seem to be these two approaches, and they're not really reconciled at the minute. Mm. So, so, yeah. Yeah, no, sorry, yeah. and I mean, in what I do, uh, what happens is I see the animal studies people kind of banging heads with the environmentalists, because the animal studies people say, no, it's not okay to go and exterminate all of those rats or mink mm. or crayfish or whatever. So for me, there's two me's. There's still a 
the odd neuron that fires in my head, which is this little child who loves nature and wants to do everything for it. But uh, professional me as an ecologist and as an evolutionary biologist, nature doesn't care. Nature just happens. Life on Earth goes on, and we're going to perturb it, and some things are going to come through this. And so it, this is all about us and our attitudes to nature. Yeah. The, processes of the birth and death of individuals of each population of each species goes on the genetics of change go on and um, unless we were to do something very odd like release a form of artificial life that can consume all types of current living cell for example which is not completely impossible but it's very <laughs> difficult to imagine uh, anything that is really going to exterminate um, life on Earth until our lovely planet burns up in, this, uh, in the death throes of the sun. And so, um, so from that perspective, what we're talking about really is how we would like the world to be because evolution, life, it has no ultimate purpose. We're just a funny accident, weird accident that happened along the way and we're dealing with it. It's not nature that's fragile, I'm sure it's us. <laughs> and and yet, yeah, I suppose the, the, the important thing about our... Uh, the neuron that's firing, the, the single mm. neuron, or, or however many, you know, the few. <laughs> um, I've uh, got about, several. No, 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 no. I mean, but, uh, you know, like, sentimentally, the, the yeah, thing yeah. that's really yeah. interesting is, is that when you want to get people involved, you want to get people committed, it's those especially childhood memories of nature. It's, yeah. it's so experiential mm. stuff that mm. motivate people mm. the most. Mm. People don't, can't really yeah. get that fired up. And they? I think what I'm trying to do is, to some extent, point out where there are apparently contradictions yeah. between what people would like to do and what the actual consequences are of what they're doing yeah. and where one, people are doing certain things because they think it's the right thing but there might actually be more more effective or efficient way yeah. of responding that actually would suit what their inner desires yeah. just as well or even better. Okay, you've been very patient with your questions, thank you. I think you two have had your hands up for a very long time. Yeah, one after the other. Hi. Um, we've talked a lot about how um, invasive species and overall there's been kind of like a net gain in terms of species number and diversity. But what about the... F and kind of how that almost means the reaction to invasive species is too much. But what about the um, impact that they have on kind of ecosystems as a whole? And by... If you have... Because I'm thinking specifically of rivers and riparian habitats. If you have a dominance of a species like Himalayan balsam, in turn you'll obviously get a loss generally of other species along the bank and how that then would have impacts on pollinators, birds, bats and kind of how that, what's your view on that in terms of isn't that therefore an issue even if there hasn't been a net loss of species in general? Can we take the question next to you as well? Um, so I guess my question is um, what do you think is the responsibility of scientists um, in the 
case of invasive or non-native species when it comes to the cultural significance of species, um, especially in cases where something is introduced um, like through a process of colonization or something like that, um, where like there's, I don't, I also don't know if there are historic cases where um, like species have gone extinct uh, that were used by like indigenous peoples um, and then and that extinction was caused by int the introduction of non-native species. Um, and I know that that's kind of like, not necessarily just like a question of ecology, but also um, like science and society interacting. Uh, so just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Thank you. I mean, on Himalayan balsam and, and, and that whole area, I mean, there's always gonna be winners and losers. Um, I, as we said, I think extinctions are, are, are pretty rare, but I mean, lo locally populations of particular species may decline and some may revive. Uh, Himalayan balsam can give cover for, ver for various species along riverbanks, so it's... Beekeepers uh, love it. Yeah, be and, and as you say, beekeepers certainly love Himalayan, Himalayan balsam. So, I mean, there are winners and losers, and, and it's not only... I mean, quite a lot of species uh, show invasive tendencies, if you like, a tendency to, to take over in particular environments, often disturbed environments which humans have messed up one way or another. Um, so, but I mean, native ones like brambles and nettles perhaps particularly, if they were foreign, we'd be complaining about those a great deal. Um, but we don't tend not to talk so much about them because they're, because they're, they're regarded as native. So again, it's, it has to do, I think, with our perceptions quite a lot. Um, but, yeah, if you have a new species that comes into an area, there's going to be change. And I suppose the bottom line here is if you, if you think change is bad of itself, then you're not going to like invasive species because they tend to stir up change. Um, but if you think change is a sign of, um, you know, sort of nature going into overdrive or, or evolving and adapting and, you know, net nettles do very well in a, in a nitrogen-rich environment, um, if you don't like nettles, get rid of the nitrogen-rich environment rather than trying to chop down nettles. I mean, you know, there, there are different approaches that one can take to things that, that we might not like. But, I, you know, broadly, th I think kind of change is good. So I think also, just to clarify, I don't know about Himalayan balsam, but I know that there are many case studies where people have returned to look at places where an invasive species did seem to be establishing itself in an environment and that then... It, the, na you know, once the, the situation has slightly more stabilised, especially where something is colonised in a disturbed environment, and you might argue that our rivers in the UK are a disturbed, have been a disturbed environment, many of them, in the last sort of, 40 years, um, that, what, that when people have returned to look again, they find that the invasive has dropped in numbers. It's it's not a straight it's not all mm. it's not always a straight sort story of blah 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 all the way up the graph. It can be a story of up and then down. I I, so, I think that's the norm actually. I mean, yeah. I, some species get a head get a head start for some for whatever local reason and they go on a boom, but then they then their know, pests run out, and run diseases effectively catch yeah. up with them. Or so, something decides that well you know I could eat this yeah. new species that's come in and uh, you know you, you you're certainly changing the ecosystem, but you very often see boom followed by bath. So, uh, yeah, if I could carry on on the balsam story, but bring in the other question, because um, 
So I, I think balsam's a very interesting one because it's, although it's common along riversides, it's often growing in places where the main nutrient-rich environments where often it would otherwise be nettles and brambles and things. And so uh, I think it's quite interesting uh, for a number of reasons. So it, just imagine that Himalayan balsam, this is the, for anyone who doesn't know what Himalayan balsam is, it's this pink-flowered thing that you see particularly along stream banks and damp places. And it's got those seed pods that pop when they're ripe, and they go like that. And it's great if, if, if when they're nearly ripe, get, get an unsuspecting friend to say, just pick that, and they go like this, and it's really, it's really great. Um, but, uh, um, <laughs> but, but just imagine that we thought they were native. So th this was a species that arrived in the Himalayas, uh, sorry, from the Himalayas, and many of the plants that got to northwestern Europe at the beginning of the current warm period of climate managed to make it across the European plain, arrived in northwest Europe. And others didn't, and they became restricted to mountain ranges like the Pyrenees, the Alps, or um, uh, for that matter, the Himalayas. So they didn't make it north, and they became restricted to mountain ranges. And some of those species, when we've moved them, like balsam, we've discovered they do very well. But if we thought they were native, they're these pink flowers. People clearly think they're very attractive. They grew them as garden plants. And I, I, I find it terribly interesting that it is, I think, I've never actually done it statistically, but I'm just sitting there as an armchair television watcher. But when there are historical dramas on, I do think that Himalayan balsam is the single commonest plant that is put in the foreground by filmmakers <laughs> when you've got when you've got some country country um, you know you're making some you know Downton or something in the background and you've got this this pretty pink flower in the front now so so that is sort of a cultural value that it's already obtaining and so this is where the other question come in I think that we often don't think of the cultural benefits we could obtain from these non-native species rather rather than all so there are some plants that are being harvested in new parts of the world so in bald, the case of balsam it's used for nectar and pollen by and beekeepers love it because it's a time of year when it's one of those abundant and it's very got lots and lots of nectar and so perhaps rather than it is inevitable it's here now and what, however much you've cut it down, it's a pretty pointless exercise. It's not going to work. So we might as well make use of it instead. But if it were declining, you think we'd be, we'd be complaining and saying it was a threatened species and we, how can we save it? If it had been here for long enough. We've got yeah. five minutes and I want to fit in a couple more questions. So, Thank you for your answers and your very entertaining talks. Um, I have actually got two questions. No, but just one, please. Okay, fine. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm drawing from Lukacs, actually, with the concept of nature, because, um, well, if, if we are talking about nature, I would put it in um, parenthesis, because um, it, not parenthesis, sorry, but um, basically, he, Lukacs, he's kind of theorizing that what we think is nature is kind of derived from second nature, which is a social construct. So as um, ecologists or scientists, where do you put human in this equation? As part of nature. We evolve from nature. We are altering the rest of nature. We are still part of nature, in my opinion. But most ecologists and most environmentalists treat nature as though it is something completely other than us. 
Exactly. So um, in this social, I mean, world situation where most of, not most, I mean, um, the land, there's a lot of urbanization going on. And when you talk about ecology, are you including these urban areas into, um, and um, so you, you, as academics and scientists, I would like to ask, um, how do you position yourself in the dialogue between what you study and social spaces in the terms of cohabiting in city areas? Yeah. I think urban, urban ecosystems are, are, you know, there's probably more evolution going on in urban ecosystems than anywhere else, and yet they're probably the least researched uh, kinds of ecosystems. So I think urban, I mean, there is, a, there is an evolved, there's a new sort of discipline getting going on looking at urban ecosystems, which I'm sure is going to come up with some really fascinating stuff in the next few years. Yep. Um, uh, thank you. Um, it was mentioned quite a bit earlier that. Um, if an invasive species is prosperous, then it's dynamic and it has the potential to be used to revive ecosystems. I just wanted to um, quickly ask, what does revive constitute? How would you practically go about it? And um, sort of, uh, is it really sort of that simple? Thank you. Uh, sorry, Fred, can we just take this yeah. one last question and then you can respond to them together? Yeah, I'm wondering how do you think this debate uh, changes with uh, uh, genetic engineering and uh, possibly CRISPR and gene drives in the future? Thank you. So question about reviving ecosystems and one about genetic engineering. And you have two minutes for all of it. <laughs> let, let me just do reviving ecosystems. I mean, na nature will get on with it. I mean, there's, there's a quite a famous example of the Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico where... Uh, people destroyed all the forests and went farming and then they've recently they've messed up the land so much that they've given up on the farming and they've gone to work in factories in the capital. Nature could recover, nature could move back into those fields. What it, it, it turned out that um, the, the native species, the native Caribbean species weren't up to it. I mean, they, we, the farms had messed up the land so much they couldn't get back. The species that have invaded and are, if you like, rewilding those former fields are actually um, things like the African tulip, which Europeans brought in as ornamental plants for their gardens. And they've sort of leapt over the garden fence and are now reviving the ecosystem, um, putting it back together, improving the soils and so on, so that finally the native species can get a toehold. So, I mean, na nature will kind of tend to do it on its own, I think. Emma, any thoughts? I don't know. I've t I, you just made me think... I, I think when I was thinking about this talk, I thought quite a lot. I don't know, have you, ever, have you read uh, The Red Mar and Green Mars? Kim Stanley Robinson. I don't know if anybody knows the work of Kim Stanley Robinson. He's a science fiction writer. But in that book, they colonise Mars. And um, they, they genetically modify sort of bacteria um, in order to terraform that is to make Mars in the image of Earth. It seems to me that there's so much um, drama to, that, that arises when you start talking about um, modifying nature. Um, and in that book, it becomes a political issue. It's really interesting. It, uh, uh, sorry, that just that made me think of that. So I, alien species on Mars. Yeah, no, it's really, it's really interesting because they start sort of like having fights about whether you know Mars should be left in its pristine mm. state or. 
So I You've would, got 30 seconds. I would answer the last couple of questions and quite a lot of the other questions with one word, Anthropocene. Yeah. We are now, we've got our finger on the thermometer of the Earth, we've got our finger on all of the habitats on the Earth, the distributions of species, and including modifying and generating new organisms that might live alongside. And so whether we want it or not, we are effectively the keystone species of our planet right now, and we need to use our judgment quite carefully. <gasps> Terrifying. Um, so we're out of time. Thank you very much for coming. Join me in thanking our speakers.